Hi, I'm Anna Lawson. Hello, it's Peter Blank. Welcome to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. Uh, on behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director at the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form at adalive.org. The United Nations recognizes December 3rd as the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Uh, and our theme this year is a day for all. According to the United Nations, the theme reflects a growing understanding that disability is part of the human condition and that almost everyone will become temporarily or permanently disabled at some point in their life. Few countries, however, have adequate systems in place to respond fully to the needs of people with disabilities. In today's ADA Live episode, we feature uh, an international research project whose purpose is to address one of the most fundamental rights we all have, equal access to public spaces. We are so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Anna Lawson. She's a professor of law and the joint director of the Center for Disability Studies at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. And she's the project co-coordinator and principal investigator of the Inclusive Public Space Project. Uh, Dr. Peter Blank, uh, University Professor and Chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, um, and also the USA Country Advisor to the Inclusive Public Spaces Project, um, will we'll speak with Anna. So, Peter, I am pleased to turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Barry. And, Anna, it's such a pleasure to uh, be with a distinguished colleague and friend and luminary we have many uh, great Americans, as I like to say, who have participated in this, uh, this uh, webinar podcast. Lex Frieden recently, who was one of the uh, major forces behind the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, I consider you a great UKer on yes. in, that, in that league. Uh, you are... Uh, an influential uh, expert advisor on all aspects of disability law, both in the UK and across Europe, as well the world. Uh, you have won several prizes and uh, direct a very large center. Uh, and, uh, and really, it is quite an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today, Anna. Thank you so much, Peter. It's, it's the, the honor and privilege is absolutely all mine. Well, in the, in the, 18, the mid-1800s, mid uh, Mark Twain in the United States, I was reading about this earlier today, um, wrote a short piece about a boy, a little boy, who was told not to observe the white elephant in the room. Today we talk about that as the elephant in the room. And I, I have to begin, Anna, on a, on a serious note, of course, and that is <laughs> that we all are in the throes of uh, 
COVID-19. UK, of course, and Europe are experiencing a resurgence. The United States is experiencing a resurgence. In terms of your overarching agenda for your uh, law school's disability law hub, and more generally in terms of your writing and thinking, which will lead us, of course, into accessibility, what is what is the present hold current times for people with disabilities as a result of this pandemic? And what are we looking at in terms of the next couple of years in terms of the implications for, uh, uh, you know, sheltering in place, uh, social distancing, and all forms of social participation, which in many ways affect people with disabilities, perhaps in different ways than other individuals. What's your thinking on that? That's a good place to start. Um, that's a massive question, actually. I think um, I think it's it throws up really interesting questions for every every piece of disability research that's going on at the moment. I don't think there's any piece of disability research that's likely to be unaffected by by what's going on at the moment. Um, I think we don't know the full impact yet of of how it what it's you know, how it's how it's played out disproportionately to affect the lives of disabled people. Um, I was talking to one of my colleagues who's disabled last week, and he was saying he hasn't left his house since the beginning of March. Um, he's because of the fear of, of of catching the virus because he's been told he wouldn't survive if he had it. Um, so I think I think we're very much at the start of working out what the disproportionate impact has has is being of this virus. I think also um, it highlights opportunities um, to to create more flexible workplaces, which might advantage many disabled people. You know, many disabled people have been pushing for reasonable accommodation in the form of more flexible working and working from home, which have which have met resistance in the past, I think it's going to be harder to resist those sorts of claims for accommodations in the future. Um, but alongside those opportunities, there are also challenges. I'm blind and um, often these online platforms have challenges that they may be technically accessible, but if you're listening to the uh, talk that's going on it's actually quite hard to hear the chat function at the same time um, and to participate in both both avenues of, of that in an audio way um, and, and I think there are a number of challenges that as I say we're, we're going to need to to unearth a little bit more and um, yeah really understand what's going on but be very responsive at the same time. And I think a big challenge is ensuring that equality law is agile enough to respond to a crisis. So um, what is undue hardship, what is reasonable in, in our language in the UK, when you're dealing with um, a situation where everything is slightly up in the air, and unknown and there isn't guidance clear guidance established guidance on things um and there's there is a tendency i think to um to abandon um the 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 adherence to 
to principles of equality and I think it's really important that we we really push hard the message that they they hold firm even in times of crisis you know that's a that's a very interesting and an important response we of course could spend a whole session on that one of my colleagues in our new uh, employment center that's focusing on uh, these issues the disability inclusive employment policy grant which was the subject of another show which BBI has recently won with our colleagues at Harvard University and Rutgers University have written a paper on the so-called silver lining of the uh, pandemic in the regard of making technology hopefully more accessible and remote work more mm. accessible. I wonder though and worry a little bit and this leads us into your important work on inclusive public spaces. Given this um, this uh, sheltering in place, is there a possibility that once we get back into the physical world there'll be new types of access barriers or that advances on that topic are stalled now as a result of the focus on basically staying at home? Yes, there definitely are. Um, there's been quite a bit of, I don't think there's been a systematic study of this yet um, that I'm aware of, but there's definitely a lot of evidence of um, increased space being given over to walking and cycling um, in the UK and in European countries but often without much attention to the accessibility of that extra space um, and I think cafes and shops are tending to operate more outdoors which means that blockages get cre created on sidewalks pavements in our language um, which again cr create create problems and as a visually impaired person, um, rules around physical distancing aren't always very easy to observe if they're marked out by visual, visual indicators. Well, may I plant a flag for a study that I would love to do with you in the Southeast ADA Center in, in this context? We actually have sort of a natural experiment, as it were, pre and post COVID or during COVID sidewalk accessibility on these exact issues, which would be very important and interesting to keep track of. I wondered as an introduction, perhaps you can tell us about this important inclusive public space project, the grant, which you won, very competitive and prestigious grant from the EU generally, and um, the nature of its objectives and perhaps some of the issues that we have just talked about in light of this pandemic. Yes, thank you, Peter. So the project, it's a five-year project and it's from the European Research Council. We're actually coming up to the end of the second year. We have been delayed because of COVID. We've had to rewrite the methodology quite significantly. Um, but it's, it's going well. And the aims of it, there are three main aims. The first concerns lived experience, the second concerns law, and the third concerns perception and building solidarity. So <clears throat> I might just say a little bit more about each of them. <clears throat> Excuse me. So first of all, the lived experience aim. So this is to deepen understanding of the causes and impact 
of unequal access to streets on people's lives. And that's particularly disabled people, older people, and parents and carers. And we're, we're and, and obviously, um, COVID-related experiences of the type we just discussed are, are part of what we're looking at in, in this research because they're, they're what people are mentioning when they're, when they're coming to their interviews. Um, so, yes, interviews. We're doing interviews in 10 cities, in five different, two cities in five different countries. And um, there'll also be a global online survey which people will be able to fill in wherever they are in the world. The second aim is about law and it's to deepen understanding of how law is and could be used to make public space more inclusive. And equality law or non-discrimination law clearly has an important role to play in this regard in the United States. Um, but we're not just looking at equality law, we're also looking at criminal law, uh, planning law and tort law and I was particularly inspired I have to say um, when thinking about this project by the the old you know long-standing work of um, Professor Jacobus Tenbroke who's a great idol of mine um, a US blind law professor who I think well he chaired the National Federation of the Blind in the US for a long time um, but he wrote a wonderful article in 1966 um, such a long time ago called The Right to Live in the World, which, which really looked at the way in which taught law principles shape how uh, welcome, how entitled um, blind people in particular are to go out and about and take part in life in a city. Um, so we're looking at, we'll be we're doing reports and um, there'll be reports from each country which dig into the law down to the local level within the two cities we're looking at at what the law is in theory but then we'll be supplementing that with empirical work which which looks at how well that law is applied how well it's understood how easy it is to enforce it and we want to learn from good practice um, and the third aim the last aim is the one about perception and solidarity building and this is to advance understanding of whether and why exclusionary public space is regarded as a minority issue so as regarded as an issue that is only of concern to a few disabled people rather than a majority issue or a universal issue that actually should be relevant to everybody um, and we want to raise awareness and build solidarity um, around the issue, not just amongst the people who experience the problems. Um, and there's a need for that. There's a bit, well, my understanding in the UK anyway is that there's quite a bit of separation between disabled people's organisations, older people's organisations, and parents' organisations who are often all challenging similar problems. Um, but also to build solidarity across countries and cultures. And between the people experiencing the problems and other members of the public um, and just get it onto the political agenda a little bit more. So those are the three that's, aims. That's brilliant. It, it is a brilliant project. I must ask, though, and I'm sure 
the EU is, is and you are, of course, mm. dealing with this. Coming back to the elephant analogy, mm, yes. uh, I won't say the blind men touching different pieces of the elephant. How about people in the dark <laughs> cave of all visual <laughs> acuities touching different pieces of the elephant? Uh, public transport, inclusive public space, of course, mm. is, a, is crucial and a, and a vehicle, sorry for the pun, to, to get places. <laughs> but, but in our day and age, um, how will this work be integrated into transport, delivery, gig economy, and all the things that inclusive public space, housing, are meant to, yeah. are, are rights that are meant to increase our participation in society? Where does this fit into that? That's a really good question. Um, and it's interesting, when you're writing a proposal for a research project, often you have to narrow it down and create focus. And I did end up excluding certain areas I would have liked to have included in, in this project uh, had we had more funding. Um, but I think this, so this, I regard streets, although we're starting with streets, as very much a starting point. I think a lot of the, the ideas, the methodology will be um, ones that I'd certainly like, and I, and I hope with, with other people like you, Peter and Barry, but um, other people interested in these topics to 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 take into other areas um but obviously we can't wait till the project finishes because it's a long project to do that so i think it's it's important to have those conversations with people working in in those areas and for us to, to be reminded all the time of the fact that this is just one small part of the elephant and um we do really need a joined up approach Public space is it covers so many more areas than than access to streets. Physical space, though the physicalness of streets um, and the interactions there, the fact they're shared with so many different types of user, create quite interesting um, an interesting background for problems because it is really about rules and guidance and practices for sharing a set space. Yes, I, I mean, it really is about the skeletal or construction of our mm. inclusion in society. I was just, I'm reading a book now uh, by a Yale professor about the, the coronavirus uh, impact. And he and his team at Yale had developed, which I just downloaded an app, which provides you, based on your daily report, uh, your risk and aspects in your community. Uh, related to contracting or spreading COVID. I wonder, it's perhaps beyond certainly the scope of this funding and this project, but the role of technology in all of this, given we are so hooked now into geolocation and individual location identification and uh, the, the opportunities yeah. for real-time technology-based AI that yeah. not only assesses these issues, but helps circumvent them. Yes, I, that's one of the issues we're hoping to to explore in the interviews and also later on in the project. Um, I think um, I think it's developing at such a fast such a fast rate. It's difficult to predict really where where technology might take us and how it might be use, useful. Um, but I think. 
Yes. So I myself use technology. I love the things, um, you know, apps that give me directions to find places, but that doesn't help with um, some of the difficulties in, in, um, in the navigation of the, the route to get there. So I might know the way, but sometimes actually, you know, the, it, at the moment I haven't found one that helps me very much with the practical, the practical obstacles of, of, getting there um but i can see already how certain apps like i i use um one called be my eyes which i absolutely love which is is totally volunteer based so a lot of millions of visually impaired people have signed up to this and millions many more millions of sighted volunteers have signed up to it and um you can just phone up and I often end up speaking to people from the U.S. actually, because it's usually late in the in the day when I phone up. So I tend to connect with people on the U.S. time zone, um, and they can see through the back of the phone what's going on. And I tend to use it in the house, but um, I know some of my friends use it when they're outside to give them, so, so they can show what's going on around them to somebody who can see to ask them for information about what's go- going on. You know, is is there a crossing post nearby? Is there a signpost with directions? Why is their guide dog refusing to move? <laughs> um, is there something dangerous up ahead of them? So it can, be, it can give you an awful lot of confidence about going out on your own, um, that, sort of, that sort of app. Well, uh, there is some irony, or perhaps there's a better word, in this day and age when we talk about inclusive public spaces, of course, many of us, and you're, you're a distinguished lawyer, a member of the Middle Temple, I believe, a bencher, uh, uh, and uh, issues of privacy, big data, surveillance. Um, do we need to worry from a legal point of view, this is obvious, we, we know the answer, we need to worry, but what, we need to what, do worry. We have to, what do we have to say about that in the context of either disability law or, um, or more general law, uh, particularly at this time where we're going to increasingly see this use of big data surveillance, artificial intelligence, which is necessary to make inclusive public yes. spaces more inclusive? I think you're absolutely right. We need to worry. Um, but I think if if we look at this uh, from a longer longer perspective um, and a disability perspective, the many disabled people have have had to compromise privacy in very intimate ways um, for a long time. I think, it, yeah, I think it's quite helpful to bring that perspective to bear on um, on current debates about privacy actually i think one of the problems now is the potential power that the data can give to to people um and the leverage that can give to interfere with people's access to basic basic daily activities basic um participation in things they want to do in everyday life um but I think, I do think, um, you know, I, I for one have had to have people who I don't know very well reading very intimate letters from my doctor, which I feel deeply uncomfortable about. 
them having access to but if they don't provide information in, in accessible formats that's that's what happens and then um, people who require assistance with washing and dressing um, I think you know, the, the, there are compromises always around privacy and assistance and I think information understanding of what the risks are is, is really important but the yeah, there, there always need to be um, choices made. Now, you have a, a structure, of course, in place in the UK, the, the, um, the Equality Act and the related anti-discrimination laws on the basis of disability. We have the ADA in the United States, and I'm sure it's similar in, in the UK. We have sophisticated, arguably, uh, ADA accessible guidelines and uh, uh, all sorts of directives from different state, local, and county laws. But it, it often seems that not only enforcement is really where the problem occurs, but as it were, the hearts and the minds of the community to really adopt inclusive public mm -hmm. spaces, particularly at this time. Do you feel that your project will eventually go well beyond law to some sort of um, uh, more general awareness raising and certainly internationally? That's definitely, so that links to the third aim. That's really what we're, we're pushing for with that third aim. And that's a big part of the project. Um, a big part of the problem we think is, is not, not necessarily um, solvable by laws um, although they can help but often it's individuals behavior um, so just nipping their car onto a pavement because they want to go into a shop even if it's against the law sometimes they'll still do it or putting their bins on pavements and um, blocking the way uh, or not cutting back their branches which hang over pavements and sidewalks um, so yeah we really want to as well as targeting politicians and lawyers and people who are experiencing the problems to help them understand better maybe you know techniques for challenging and enforcing their rights um, to raise awareness amongst the public more generally and so we've got various various things in mind for doing this one of them is virtual reality um, which is a bit of a bit of an experiment uh, but we've got somebody an engineer working on that at the moment we've got a big um, pedestrian simulator in the University of Leeds where we can simulate the interactions between pedestrians and vehicles but we'll also be taking that out onto headsets and um, software that can travel travel around the world a little bit more easily and um, films and audio stories um, so, yeah, we're, we're hoping to use these sorts of tools and to build up quite a library of the ones we create, but maybe we know that other people, um, other activists around the world are putting together this kind of material for themselves. So maybe to create a little bit of a, of a hub where we can create links to the materials that other people are producing for themselves to raise awareness of the problems. And, and those sorts of international dictionaries, of course, form the basis for someday we all may be wearing, regardless of our 
our visual skills, uh, some form of Google Glass or some form of glasses in which your app, Be My Eyes, is integrated into that and as well as other so-called bells and whistles. Yes. Um, I'm sure that's coming, but you raised another point. You feel free to comment on that as well. I know that in the Inclusive Public Spaces Project, you have India, Kenya, the Netherlands, of course, UK, United States. Uh, what sorts of commonalities do you think you will find? And can you draw, will you be able to draw commonalities or is it, or is it more of a, a cultural awareness that may vary very much by these different diverse communities? What do you expect to find in that regard? Um, I think there will be some commonalities um, and I think the international law helps us with some of the legal commonalities. Um, so the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has been ratified by all of the countries taking part except the United States. Um, and that, I think, gives, gives a good overarching common language with which to talk about the issues, um, as do the Sustainable Development Goals. So, so we're keen on having that interna internationally shared uh, language um, and kind of tool for change to work within. Um, and then I, I think I... I um, wouldn't be surprised if we if we unearth quite a few differences as well as commonalities. Um, so far, the only cities in which we've carried out we've started carrying out the interviews are the two in the UK, Leeds and Glasgow, and there have already been quite a few differences that have that have started to shine through. Um, because Leeds, for instance, early on took a view that it wouldn't allow shared space in the city, whereas Glasgow hasn't. And that's, that's had an influence on who's doing the activism and how the activism is being done and um, the issues that are being, um, that are top profile. And I think that will, it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out across all the cities that we're looking at. Um, I think weather, climate will have a big impact as well. Um, that will make you know surface issues in one one city that aren't so relevant elsewhere um and i think also it's, it's been very interesting talking to people in kenya and india particularly um where issues of economics are so um op they, they operate in a slightly different way than they seem to be doing in in the us the netherlands and the uk um, so if people can afford to travel by car and to have a driver, they will do that rather than using public transport and walking, whereas um, the, the walking agenda is, is, I think, growing in strength, in, um, certainly in the UK and the Netherlands, and I think it probably is in the US too. Um, and I think that, will, that has an impact on, on who experiences these problems and who's involved therefore in trying to challenge them and, and how those challenges are made. Um, but I think that's, I, I think understanding 
those those differences is is really important in terms of building solidarity and trying to develop something that an inclusive response across geographies and across cultures and economics speaking of solidarity uh we of course uh presumably have elected joe biden as our president the united states senate potentially uh is in uh is in play now if the Democrats were to win the Senate. Uh, President Obama uh, signed the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the CRPD. The Senate chose not to ratify it, as is required under our constitution of that check and balance. So we may see a change there, but we mu I must ask you, as, a, as somebody who is uh, so versed and so uh, recognized, in the UN Convention, uh, what are the implications of the UN Convention for either this awareness raising, change in law, uh, or um, uh, or obligations under the Convention itself that go to these issues of inclusive public spaces? Mm, I think it's been immensely useful to disabled people's organizations in the UK, I think, to have the language of the CRPD to frame um, campaigns around and to use the machinery that's set up by that convention to raise concerns at an international level that, that then come back to the government from a different direction. So it can amplify the voice of civil society in quite an important way. Um, whether anything gets done, obviously, is a, is a different matter. Um, it depends on, in the, at the end of the day, you know, the, there is no compulsion on the governments to change. But I think it's, it's, it's a powerful tool in terms of advocacy and raising awareness um, of all sorts of issues and concerns. And, and, um, Oh, sorry. I could, was there another part of the question, Peter? I've forgotten the question. Oh, no. Just, I think you've answered it. Uh, I? The implications of the CRPD and if you see any yeah. implications uh, in domestic law as a result of the CRP on the, on the horizon. Yes. So the UK, uh, like the US, I think, is a dualist country. So we, when we ratify a human rights treaty, it doesn't automatically become enforceable by the courts um, and therefore it's it's a bit more slow I think to penetrate into um, into taking shape and influencing the way the law works in a country than it would be if the country was a more modest approach where the where the treaty automatically can be enforced by courts as soon as it's ratified um, but it is undoubtedly influential. I think Wales is thinking about um, giving it some kind of role in its in in terms of domestic lawmaking in Wales, as I think Scotland has looked at doing that too. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, I think it it strengthens the voice. It gives disabled people's organisations a, a central. Um, agenda to come together around so it's I think it's been very it took a while before it was very 
much used in the UK. And I think it was only really when the UK's record on implementing disability rights was, was considered by the UN committee that, that civil society really came together around it. But, but there were 33 shadow reports from disabled people's organisations in the UK to that committee. And um, that, was, that, that was a huge awareness raising exercise in itself about, the, about human rights. Um, and I think it creates the, the possibility for crossover and linkage between different disabled people's organisations working on different issues too. Well, Anna, I always, even in this dire unprecedented time, I consider myself a very lucky and blessed person when I have the chance to talk to brilliant people like yourself. <laughs> and I, I know that for me, it's an amazing interview when I could just converse all day with complete uh, sense of comfort and learning from somebody like yourself. So I thank you for that, first of all, and I know mm -hmm. our listeners will thank you for that as well. Uh, I would like to tell our listeners that if you have any questions about this topic or other ADA live topics, you certainly can submit them online at www adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. Of course, that's a United States uh, phone number. And uh, we are very lucky indeed, Anna, to, to learn from you, to be your partner, and mostly to share this journey together, which is touching so many people in such profound ways at this time, almost unprecedented in, in so many ways uh, of not only the disability rights movement, but the, the human rights movement in general during this time. And we, all of us at the BBI and, and more broadly, thank you for your efforts, for your impact, and for the opportunity to continue to dialogue with you going forward. Thank you, Peter. That is very generous. And I think we learn far more from you than you learn from us. And the United States is included in the project because of how much we, we are all still learning, I think, from the experiences of the ADA. Well, thank you again. I'll turn it over to our folks at the Southeast ADA Center and BBI to take us home. Right. Thank you, Peter. And Anna, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time today. Just a fascinating discussion. <clears throat> so we want to thank you for being our guest. And as a reminder, listeners, you can submit your questions and comments for this episode online at adalive.org. You can get access to all ADA Live episodes on our website at adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. You can also listen to ADA Live on SoundCloud. Uh, look for us at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. Uh, you can also download ADA Live to your mobile device. Just look in the podcast app and search for ADA Live. 
Throughout this year, we've asked you to uh, celebrate, learn, and share the important milestone of the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as the 75th anniversary of National Dis Disability Employment Awareness Month, and also the 100th anniversary of the Vocational Rehabilitation Program. You can check out the ADA Celebration Toolkit at adaanniversary.org. The toolkit is a product of the Southeast ADA Center and the ADA National Network. It features logos, social media posts, monthly themes, and other resources to keep the celebration going. Also, on a social media platform of your choosing, uh, you can do hashtag thanks to the ADA to share what the ADA means to you, that moment in your life when you were thankful for the ADA. You can share that on any social media at hashtag thanks to the ADA. Finally, as a reminder, if you have questions about the ADA, you can submit your questions at any time at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Remember, all calls are free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marsha Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode, and please be safe, everybody.